Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12, the Gospel of John chapter 12. I'm glad it was a warm welcome because last weekend there's no way you could have had a warm welcome that would warm you up to any degree at all. That was like the coldest. I read or heard somewhere that New Mexico was the coldest state in America during that cold spell we had a week, week and a half ago. That was crazy. I mean, I love snow and stuff, but I'm kind of done with it. So today there's, there's people sitting outside a little bit. Actually, one person during first service was outside. It was like a warm 27 degrees, you know. I mean, So um, anyway, let's pray together. Lord, it's great to get the family together. It's wonderful to sing songs that are so meaningful. They come, they arise out of hearts that are filled with worship. For the most part, that is the case here. Father, we do pray that the Spirit of God would move this morning. He already has been. We have sensed it. But we pray more so through your word that it would be direct to us. We give ourselves, Lord, to this time. It's set aside. It's set aside to listen to what you might want to say to us. And part of our worship is to pay close attention to what we believe the Spirit of the Lord is saying through the written Word. As we encounter the written Word, we will then also encounter the living Word, Christ Himself. That's our prayer this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes it's helpful to make a comparison. We're going to do that today in the Gospel of John. We're going to look at a few different comparisons When you compare one thing with another thing, it helps you realize how far you've come. For example, if you were to compare your modern cell phone, the one that you have, with the first or one of the first mobile phones. This was the Motorola brick phone. And um, it was quite sizable, but if I recall, it didn't drop calls. But what a difference, what a comparison between your slim cell phone that has apps on it with that thing. Or if you were to compare your laptop computer, if you have one, with one of the first computers. What a comparison. See, we laugh at that, and that wasn't long ago. By the way, that brick phone, I found it. I found one at an antique sale. <laughs> or if you were to compare your modern kitchen appliances with what your grandmother had her refrigerator. What a difference. When you make comparisons like that, you are able to see why one is more preferable than the other. And we're going to do that in the Gospel of John, chapter 12. There are three comparisons that we look at this morning. Before we get to that, let me help you frame some of the material that is written by the Gospel writers. Um, We're in chapter 12 of John. We're dealing with the final week of Jesus on the earth. He lived 33 and a half years. The final week of Jesus upon the earth begins in chapter 11. Chapter 12 really is the beginning of that last week of his life. But you'll notice that we're only in chapter 12. 
So what's important is that John, in terms of literary real estate, devotes one half, almost one half, of the entire book to the last week of Jesus on earth. Matthew devotes two-fifths of his words and chapters to the last week. Gospel of Mark, three-fifths. Luke devotes one-third of all of his words to the last week. That's the, that's the focus, because that's the week that redemption occurred, the death on the cross, and all of those events that lead up to it are highly significant. Here's another way to look at it. If you were to tally up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you would discover there's only four chapters in all four Gospels that cover the first 30 years of Jesus' life. Eighty-five deal with the last three and a half years, and of that 85, 29 are focused upon the last week. We're now at one of the most significant events, and that is the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. We call it Palm Sunday. That's the day we think it happened. The week before the Passover, the week before his crucifixion, probably was a Sunday. Something else. This event is one of the few events covered by all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and and John cover this event. And there's only a few of Jesus' events of his life that are told in all four Gospels. Now, I look at it this way. Anytime God repeats something four times, it's pretty important. Sometimes Jesus will say things twice, like, verily, verily. The disciples knew that meant, listen up. Sometimes God will introduce himself three times, holy, 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 in Isaiah 6. But here, in the Gospels, this story, this event is mentioned four times. He wants us to really get this. Verse 12, we begin. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, The people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So we have a day, a specific day I want to tell you about. We have a donkey. We have sitting on the donkey the deliverer for the sins of the world. And we have a decision that Jesus, in fact, forces people to make with this presentation. He has made many claims. He has done many signs. Now, for the first and only time, he presents himself as their Messiah, forcing their hand to make a decision regarding him. A day, a donkey, a deliverer. A decision. Now, as I look at it, 
this is like the world's luckiest donkey. Of all the donkeys in the fold, wherever that little town across on the Mount of Olives was, this donkey was like the luckiest donkey. On his back rides the Son of God fulfilling ancient prophecy. I've always loved this story. This is one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture, hands down. I did a little donkey research this week. Unknown donkey facts. Fact number one. Did you know that donkeys' average lifespan is between 25 to 40 years? Sometimes, if you take care of your donkey, they'll live 60 years of age. They have quite a hefty lifespan. George Washington owned the first donkeys in America, and he became a donkey breeder. Your first president was into donkeys. Donkeys' favorite pastime? Rolling in the dirt. They love to do that more than anything else. That's why when you touch them, this cloud goes around them of dust. And this probably explains the personality of Eeyore better than any other fact. They love to roll in the dirt. Donkeys, as you know, have long ears for two reasons. It enables them to hear miles away, and interestingly enough, it keeps them cool. Like a radiator, it it, it helps keep their bodies cool. Something else, donkeys are not just used to transport people or burdens. Did you know that in some places, donkeys are used as guard animals? Now, I never knew this. I've never seen a sign, beware of donkey. (laughs) I never thought of donkeys being used, but apparently in certain parts of the world, to guard sheep, donkeys are used. Final fact, according to the London Times, more people are killed annually by donkeys than die in airplane crashes. So if you're afraid to fly, just think of riding a donkey. It might help you. Now, I don't know if that's really true. That's what the London Times reported, but I don't know, honestly, who's keeping track of annual donkey deaths around the world. Nonetheless, those are considered the facts. This event takes place on a Sunday. As I mentioned, Palm Sunday. That's what it's traditionally referred to as. But it was a special day, and, and you're going to notice that, I hope, during this little message. It was the tenth day of Nisan in the Jewish calendar. Why is that important? On the tenth day of Nisan, the Jewish families, that was the day they would select the lamb and bring it into the family that would be sacrificed on the 14th of Nisan, the day of Passover. This was the day the households picked the lamb for sacrifice. It is not insignificant then that for the first and only time, Jesus Christ presents himself as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world to the nation of Israel. Now we're going to notice three comparisons in our text. And you'll notice in your worship folder, you have an outline. And this week I cheated a little bit. I didn't give you the full uh, sentence. You have to fill in the blank. I want you to be engaged. So jot this down. Here's the first comparison. Jesus is more appealing than religion. That's the first comparison. Jesus is more appealing than religion. Look at verse 12. The next day, a great multitude, and I'll describe that multitude in a moment, that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. All right. 
These people are religious people. They have come to Jerusalem for a religious feast. The feast is Passover, we're told back in verse 1. Passover, one of the three mandatory feasts. That is, if you lived within a certain range of Jerusalem, it was compulsory that you went up to Jerusalem for three feasts, and one of them was Passover. Passover celebrated the deliverance of the children of Israel through ten plagues in the book of Exodus that forced the children of Israel out into the wilderness and into a new land. Passover was the focal point of their history. Their calendar revolved around their redemption. The calendar changed once Passover was instituted. But it was the same thing every year. When they went up to Jerusalem, people took the same route every year. And the people, frankly, by and large, wanted something more than their religion was giving them. More than endless rituals, more than prescribed prayers, more than the same sacraments and ceremonies. They wanted something more. Max Lucado has written many great books, and one of his books, he calls it the musings of a shepherd, one little piece. It's as if the shepherd, one of them, is watching what is happening at Passover during Jerusalem. I'll read it to you. He sits on a slope, places a blade of grass in his mouth. He looks beyond the flock down at the road below. For over a week, a river of pilgrims has streamed through this valley, bustling down the road with animals and loaded carts. For days he has watched them from his perch, He knew where they were going and why. They were going to Jerusalem. And they were going to sacrifice lambs in the temple. The celebration strikes him as ironic. Streets jammed with people, marketplaces full of sounds, of the bleeding of goats and the selling of bird. Endless observances. The people relish these festivities. They awaken early and retire late. They find strange fulfillment in this pageantry, but not him. What kind of God would be appeased by the death of any animal? Oh, the shepherd's doubts are never voiced anywhere except on that hillside. But on this day they shout. It isn't the slaughter of animals that disturbs him. It's the endlessness of it all. How many years has he seen people come and go? How many caravans? How many sacrifices? How many bloody carcasses? Lamb after lamb, Passover after Passover, he turns his head, looks again at the sky and says, will the blood of yet another lamb really matter? That's how a lot of those people felt. They wanted something more than religion. They wanted reality. And that's why so many of them, this crowd, gathers around Jesus and say what they said to him. They wanted something real. John Wesley used to say, I want my religion like my tea. I want it hot. In other words, I don't want some cold, perfunctory, ritualistic, dead religious thing. I want reality. I want it Hot. Jesus Christ was a breath of fresh air in the malaise of dead religion. There was a time, Matthew 15 records, that the scribes and Pharisees came from Jerusalem to wherever Jesus was. And um, 
It's an interesting conversation. It still puzzles me to this day. They come to Jesus and they say, Why do your disciples transgress the traditions of the elders? They don't wash their hands the right way before they eat. Now I say I'm puzzled because evidently this group was highly motivated to take a trip all the way from Jerusalem to wherever Jesus was to tell him that, to be like tattletale. Your disciples don't wash their hands right. They break the tradition of our religion. What's interesting is what Jesus said to them. He said, why is it that you, by your tradition, are breaking the commandments of God? Now, had I been in the crowd, I would have gone, yes! Finally, somebody stands up to these nitwits who are all about their little traditions and their little religious stuff. And here Jesus is saying, we need reality. We need relationship." That's why people were more attracted to Jesus. He is more appealing than religion. I find it fascinating that Jesus often hung out with tax collectors, sinners they're called, prostitutes. But the most scathing words that come from Jesus' lips were for religious people. Don't you find that interesting? In fact, religious leaders, the religious elite. Classic example is Matthew chapter 23. 24 verses are devoted to scathing words. I'm just going to quote a few of them to you. Here here they are. And I quote, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. Neither do you go in, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you travel land and sea to make one proselyte, and when you convert him, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Ouch! That's why you can see Jesus didn't have a whole lot of space for this dead, empty religion that didn't provide anything in terms of reality for people. So you'll notice a multitude came to the feast. And when he was was in Galilee, multitudes followed him. They were clamoring for this. They were hungry and thirsty for this. Mark puts it this way, and the common people heard him gladly. Jesus was a breath of fresh air. Now, it says a great multitude came, and um, I'm going to give you a little hint here. Um, Passover was a big deal. One source that we read, one source, tells us that during one Passover around the time of Christ, 256,000 lambs were slain in Jerusalem for one Passover. According to ancient Jewish law, there were 10 people required for every one lamb. That puts the population in Jerusalem at roughly 2.7 million people plus. Crowds of people. Jesus, and I'm going to put all the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together. Jesus gets up in the morning in Bethany, walks toward the ascent of the Mount of Olives. Behind him gathers a crowd, a sizable multitude. As he gets to the very top of the Mount of Olives, another crowd that has come out of the city is there to meet with him. So there are thousands of people because of what is happening with Lazarus and now Jesus presenting himself on this donkey. And the people cried out one word. Hosanna. 
And also, some said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. They're quoting Psalm 118, a messianic victory psalm, straight out of the scriptures. Now, the word Hosanna means simply save now or bring salvation now. It was not a praise. It was a prayer. It was a desire. They're saying, do for us what our religion has not done for us all these years. Save us. Bring salvation, deliverance, and bring it now. That's what they cry out. I still find Jesus Christ the most compelling figure in history. Now, I've been saved since 1973, and I've read through the Bible on several, several occasions. And uh, I still will stop often in my reading in the New Testament because I am just drawn and compelled and amazed at Jesus Christ. He is the most significant person in all of human history, and I've discovered I'm not alone in that assessment. I read several different quotes. I'm going to give you just a few. Napoleon Bonaparte said, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ was no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I myself have founded great empires, but Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and to this day millions would die for him. That's one ruler looking back at that one leader, Christ. Here's another from H.G. Wells, a historian and an author. He wrote War of the Worlds and other books. Quote, I am an historian. I am not a believer. But I must confess that as a historian, that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of all history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. Mahatma Gandhi said of Christ, he's a man who's completely innocent. And he offered himself as a sacrifice for the good of others, including his enemies, and became the ransom of the world. And finally, one of my favorite authors, Fyodor Dostoevsky, a Russian novelist, writes, I believe there is no one deeper, lovelier, more sympathetic, and more perfect than Jesus. Not only is there no one else like him, there never could be anyone else like him. Now, you see, this is what angers these Pharisees. When in the last verse of our text, they said, look, the whole world has gone after him. Because they saw that within the hearts of these people grew this longing that they couldn't fulfill. They were going after Jesus. So that's the first comparison. Jesus is more appealing than religion. Here's the second comparison. Jot this down. Scripture is more reliable than opinion. Scripture is more reliable than opinion. Now, there's a lot of people around Jesus. And there must have been a lot of opinions about who he was. Just in the Gospel of John, just in John alone, John records the reaction of several people. And here's just a sampling. In John chapter 7, some said, he's a prophet. In John chapter 9, some said, this man is not from God. Others in that chapter said, this man is a sinner. Also in that same chapter, again, they said he's a prophet. John chapter 10, some were saying he has a demon and is crazy. Others said this couldn't be the Christ because he's from Galilee. 
Three times in John's gospel is this phrase, and the people were divided because of Christ, or there was a division among the people because of him. No question. Were any of those opinions accurate? Not really. I mean, the closest one is when they said he's a prophet. That harkens back to Deuteronomy 18, when Moses said, another one will come, a prophet like me, you will listen to him. That's a reference to Christ. But all of these were opinions. And the point I want to make is that what Scripture declares him to me is much more important and reliable than what anyone believes him to be. Twice in our paragraph are quotes from Scripture. You'll notice in verse 13, they say, Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a quote right out of Psalm 18, 118. Look at verse 15. Or let's go in verse 14. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. He's quoting a scripture that is probably five to six hundred years old that Jesus on this day, the 10th of Nisan, is fulfilling. Question, why is he sitting on a donkey? Why a donkey? Did he just say, I'm tired. Well, he just got up. It was the morning. Did he say, I've always wanted to be on a donkey. I love donkey rides. No, he's doing this, John says, to fulfill what the prophet said, that the Messiah will come, the king will come riding on a donkey. Now, the full scripture comes to us in Zechariah 9, verse 9, and it's stated this way. Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Rejoice, O daughter of Jerusalem, for behold, your king is coming to you. He is lowly and riding a donkey. He is just and having salvation on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And John lifts part of that verse or paraphrases that verse and says that Jesus fulfilled it. Why a donkey? For this reason. Whenever kings rode in a parade fashion on a donkey, it was during times of peace. Whenever it was times of war, they would ride a horse. Jesus wasn't coming as their great deliverer, victor, I'm going to wipe out the Romans. He's coming as the Prince of Peace, offering peace through the salvation by the death that he would die within a week. He came in peace. That's his first coming. He came as the Prince of Peace. Now, when he comes the second time, Revelation 19 says he's going to ride a horse, a white horse. And that is because, it says in Revelation 19, he comes to judge and to make war. Two different comings. But there's something else going on. And, and to me, this is why I say this is, this is like one of the most favorite verses of Scripture. This doesn't just show us the applicability of Old Testament Scripture to the life of Christ, but the accuracy and reliability of it. Now, I'd like you to turn, keep a, a marker here, a finger here, turn back one book, that's all, one book, Luke, turn to the book of Luke, chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. It's the same event with an added detail by Luke about this coming of Jesus into Jerusalem. Luke chapter 19. In verse 41, he's now descending the Mount of Olives. He's going down on this donkey. He stops and he weeps over the city. Verse 42, notice, 
Jesus said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Then he predicts the fall of Jerusalem. He said, You should have known this day. This is a day you should have known about. And he predicts the fall of Jerusalem because they didn't know the day. Now look at verse 44. They will not leave in you, that is Jerusalem, one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. What's he talking about? What day is he referring to? Because he's obviously holding them accountable to know this day. And then he mentions the time of your visitation. This is what he's, this is what he's referring to. He's referring to, and I'm going I'm to need your brains on this one. You've got to follow me on this one. You've got to really think and engage here. Jesus is referring back to a promise, a prediction made in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, that says the exact time the Messiah will come. He's holding them accountable for not knowing the date. In Daniel 9, the angel Gabriel comes to Daniel the prophet, and he says this, 70 sevens, literally, 70 sevens, or 490 years, are determined for your people, that's the Jewish people, and for your holy city, that's the city of Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to bring reconciliation for iniquity, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Seventy periods of seven, 490 years. Now, watch this. I'm going to read it to you. This is Daniel 9, and I'm reading in the New Century Version for ease. Learn and understand these things, the angel says to Daniel. A command will come to rebuild Jerusalem. The time from this command until the Messiah comes, or the anointed leader, will be 49 years and 434 years. Or, I did the math, a total of 483 years. After this, the Messiah will be killed. Okay, stop. What did we learn so far? The angel says, Daniel, from the time that a commandment comes to rebuild Jerusalem, which had fallen to the Babylonians and was destroyed, to rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah will be 483 years. Okay, now we have information. Because we know in history the exact date when the commandment was given to restore and build Jerusalem. It was given by Artaxerxes Longimanus on March 14th, 445 B.C. It's well attested to in history. That means we should be able to count 483 years from March 14th, 445 B.C. and come up with the coming of the Messiah. Now, there was a guy named Sir Robert Anderson who wrote a book called The Coming Prince, where he documents all that I'm saying in in I'm saying it in brief fashion. It's a whole book about it. Sir Robert Anderson was, was knighted for his work, and he was the head of Scotland Yard at one time. So he took the calendar, the Jewish calendar, based on the Babylonian calendar of 360 days, not 365 days. And he discovered that 483 years is 173,880 days precisely. He calculated it. It's in his book. That means that from March 14th, 445 B.C., if you were to count 173,880 days, you should find something significant. Well, he did. He counted 173,880 days from March 14th, 445 B.C., and it happened to fall in our calendar on April 6th, 32 A.D. You know what date that was? 
this day. This day, the 10th of Nisan, when the lambs were presented to the household, when Jesus Christ, for the first and only time, allowed this kind of public parade of his Messiahship into Jerusalem. On this exact day, Jesus came. Now, here's my question to you. How exact is God? How precise is God? Does God keep his appointments? Is God ever late? Can you trust this kind of God? That's really the bottom line issue. Now, the disciples who were there seeing all this, they didn't get this at first until after Jesus ascended into heaven and was glorified. Look at verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now, that's how it works. The longer you spend reading this book and going through it, I'll tell you what, every time I, I, I find fulfilled prophecy, and there's so much of it here, I marvel at the accuracy of it and the reliability of it. It's absolutely astonishing to me. Hebrews says the Word of God is sharper than any two edged sword. It's living and powerful. So that's the great point here. Scripture is more reliable than opinion. Now forgive me, but when somebody says, well, my opinion about God and my opinion about Jesus, stop, stop, stop. I don't care about your opinion until your opinion gets as accurate as this book. But when it comes to your opinion about God, and for that matter, my opinion about God, it doesn't mean anything. Scripture that reveals God and reveals Jesus accurately with pinpoint accuracy is more reliable than anyone's opinion, including all of theirs on that day. Here's the question, though, to walk away with before we get into our next and final point. A God that is this accurate, A God that is this detailed and this caring. Is he trustworthy? Is he? So say he's trustworthy. Okay, he is trustworthy. You can rely upon him. So whatever you're dealing with and going through in your life, just remember back to this. He can handle it. He sees it all in advance. Here's the third and final comparison. Following is more important than observation. Following is more important than observation. Now, I didn't know this until I really studied this paragraph this week. But there's four groups that are mentioned. Four separate groups that were observing this whole event. First group is the disciples. They're mentioned in verse 16. The disciples are followers of Christ. They're learners. That's what disciple means. They're learning and they're following this Jesus for three, three and a half years now. That's verse 16. The second group were a group of eyewitnesses who were present a few days before when Lazarus was raised from the dead. They saw it. They were with Martha and Mary standing in front of the tomb when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And they saw that dead guy walk. And they told other people about it. That's verse 17. Therefore, the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. They told other people. The third group is in verse 18. They're the people who heard what the second group told. 
Wow, I just heard that this Lazarus guy is alive, that this Jesus guy raised him from the dead. They were there, that's verse 18. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. Now there's a fourth group, and that's verse 19. And those are the Pharisees, the religious elite. We've studied them before. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, I mean, they're looking at these three groups of people gathered around Jesus. And the Pharisees said, You see, you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. (laughs) I chuckle at this. Because if you recall back, when they had that little council meeting of the Sanhedrin, this was their biggest fear. They said, chapter 11, verse 48, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. Now they're kind of going, okay, we, we blew it. We lost. It's over. Everybody believes in him. Look, everybody's following him. Now, that wasn't true. Everybody was observing him. Everybody was excited in the moment. Everybody was very emotional. But of all of those four groups that were watching this, there was only one group that believed in the Scripture and placed their trust in Jesus, and that was those disciples. That was the only group. Here's my point. It's great to make observations. It's great to study the life of Christ and observe certain facts about Him. But observations should lead us to conclusions which should lead us to actions. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with Jesus Christ? There's a lot of people who study and underline and take notes and are a part of sort of the function of the event of Christianity, all short of applying truth to their lives and living it out in obedience to Him. That's following Christ. That's being a disciple. So, today is the day of your visitation for some of you. Just as God engineered that donkey and that exact date, I believe God has engineered it for you to be here this morning. It's no coincidence. Oh, no, no, no. I was invited by a friend. Yeah, that's what it seems like. You were put here by God. Oh, well, I really didn't want to come. wasn't my idea, but I, I got stuck in traffic, so I decided I'd stay. Okay, cool. You got an appointment with God. This is the day of your visitation. This is the time, perhaps, that God has for you. What will you do about it? You know what's interesting about the story? And I close with this. Of all of the personalities in the story, the donkey is the most compliant one. Isn't that interesting? Because typically we associate donkeys with being really stubborn. Donkey's just like, he'll come along from that town to this town. Jesus will sit on him. He'll go down. He's the most compliant one in the story. What a lucky donkey. G.K. Chesterton, a great author, I commend his writings to you. G.K. Chesterton wrote a little poem imagining what it was like to be this donkey. And if you don't mind, I'll close with it. When fishes flew and forests walked and figs grew upon a thorn, some moment when the moon was blood, then surely I was born. With monstrous head and sickening cry and ears like errant wings, the devil's walking parody of all four-footed things. The tattered outlaw of the earth with ancient crooked will, starve, scourge, deride me, I am dumb, but I keep my secret still. Fools, for I also had my hour, one far fierce hour and sweet. There were shouts about my ears and palms beneath my feet. That donkey, on that day, carried the deliverer 
while people were making their decision. What's your decision? What's your decision concerning Christ? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bow our heads because you're the king of the universe. We close our eyes to not have any other distraction before us or movement. And we think about what we just heard and we are amazed at not only how one scripture relates to another, but how accurate and reliable your word is, the Bible is, one of the classic proofs that the Bible is unlike any other book in literature. And that following Christ is the smartest move because we see, even mathematically, the very day described by Daniel for which Jesus held the nation accountable. Jesus walked in or came in to Jerusalem sitting on a donkey, fulfilling Daniel's prophecy, fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy, fulfilling Psalm 118, showing us that the revelation of your word is far more important than the opinion of any man or woman or documentary on television. And so, Lord, here we are confronted like they were then with a choice. Will Jesus become our Lord or will we relegate him to the realms of religion and belief systems, myths that people have? If you're here today, and maybe up to this point, Jesus is... This has just been sort of a religious experience. You go to church. You've had children, so you think they need to be in a good environment. You come. You listen. You sing. You're involved up to a point. But it's, it's, just, it's just like religion. There's no reality. There's nothing authentic. Nothing compelling about Jesus that you follow him. Now is your opportunity, this day of your visitation, to change that. And to make Jesus the center of your life. And to, like these disciples, commit to Him and follow Him. And believe His word and believe and trust Him. If you want to do that, if you want to see that change in your life. Or maybe you at one time followed Christ, but you haven't been lately and you need to come back to Him. As our heads are bowed, as we're praying and we're about to close. If you want to commit your life to Christ, I want to pray for you as we close. I need to know who I'm praying for, so I'm going to ask you to slip your hand up in the air. Slip it up high. Just keep it up there for a moment, and I'll acknowledge you. God bless you, ma'am. And you, sir, toward the front. And you. And you off to the side. Off to my right. Yes, ma'am. See your hand. In the back. A couple of you in the back. A couple of you right in the middle up front. In the family room. Anyone else? Raise it up high. Move it around so I can see it. God bless you in the back. Yep, a couple of you. I miss you. I'm glad you moved it around. Father, we pray for every hand because every hand is attached to a a life, a real life, someone that's important, someone that you died for and you want to give new life. I pray, we pray for all of them, that you'd strengthen them in the commitment that they're making a commitment to come to you for the first time or to come back to you and to walk with you and to be forgiven and live in newness of life, to trust this God who is so accurate. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.